Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Project Zero lays into Symantec's enterprise products, the botnet you'll never find, and the real security issues with HTML5 video ads. Then it's your great questions, our answers, our rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 273 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on June 30th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, oh, our live stream? Why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Over at ScaleEngine.com, you should probably go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello. Hello, Chris, everybody. Hello, Alan. uh, Oh, I I just noticed you're rocking the uh, TechSnap swag there. Look at you. Good good on you. Good on you. Very nice. So this is my – I feel feel special because this is my last episode before I go out for 10 days. So this Mm -hmm. is like – the only tech snap I think I won't – I've never done. Have I, have I have missed any other tech snaps before? Maybe one other. Oh, I had uh, Noah sit so in You before. were in the room. Yeah. So, but, yeah. so you didn't really miss it. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, we were doing a double, right? And yeah. Just like the second episode is like, let Chris go eat something. Yeah, I went to have lunch and Noah sat down and then uh, – but he, he, he needed help in a couple of spots, so I jumped in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could call that now. Yeah, so I'm kind of excited. I'm looking forward to this. And our first story is one that I was just reading before the show started and looked over to the show notes and saw that you were documenting it away. It's from Google's Project Zero group, and it sounds yes. fascinating. So you're ready to just jump right in? Yeah. Uh, so as we kind of uh, talked about before, Google's Project Zero has been basically going down the list of antivirus vendors and ripping yeah. them all. <laughs> I love find, it. Uh, finding problems in every single one. And they, and they talk about that a bit more here. Uh, but they, uh, they finally got around to releasing the one about Symantec. Uh, so Symantec is a popular vendor in the enterprise security market. Their flagship product is Symantec Endpoint Protection, uh, which they, you know, they've tried to get away from the idea of it's just a virus scanner. This is endpoint protection. It right. protects the the machines, uh, not just computers now, right? Because you have phones and tablets and so on uh, that make up your enterprise. Uh, they sell various products using the same core engine in several markets, including the consumer versions, which are marketed under the Norton brand. If you remember all the Norton oh, yeah. virus Oh, yeah, for years and years and years. Yep. Oh, for sure. They still have those. So they, they, basically, they use that brand for the cheap stuff. Uh, today, we're publishing details on multiple critical vulnerabilities that we have discovered, including many which are wormable and allow remote code execution. Boy, that's extra bad. Yeah. When the product so, is specifically designed to protect your network and your endpoints. wormable things. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. So, uh, in particular, they're like, these vulnerabilities are as bad as it gets. Uh-oh. Uh, they don't require any user interaction, so the user doesn't have to do anything to get infected. It just happens with you, you clicking anything. Um, they affect the default configuration, so it's not, you know, you had to have turned off some setting or something. Uh, every, you know, unless you've changed some things, you're definitely vulnerable. Uh, and the software runs at the highest privilege level possible. Uh, right. you know, in Windows, it's uh, running as like the system user, and so, so it can't be turned off. Uh, but some of these products also are for Linux and and other operating systems, uh, like Android or whatever, and uh, they're all running with super high privileges there as well. Uh, it says in certain cases on Windows, a vulnerable code is even loaded into the kernel, resulting in remote kernel memory corruption vulnerabilities. 
So say, uh, as Symantec uses the same core engine across their entire product line, all Symantec and Norton-branded antivirus products are affected by these vulnerabilities, including but not limited to Norton Security, Norton 360, and all other legacy Norton products. Of course. So some of these vulnerabilities uh, affect all previous versions too. So it's possible that even a five-year-old virus scanner is vulnerable to this. You know, Hopefully the, nobody's still using a five-year-old virus scanner. But. It's, it's, it's ironic that uh, their core vulnerability here now with their security products is that it has that shared platform across all of them, yeah. which really kind of – which also sort of implies that they're all basically the same core technology just – with different labels and slightly different features. Or rather, you're, you're paying extra for extra features, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where the extra features probably even sitting in the code on your computer, but possibly you pay for it, you don't get Or at it. least the platform underneath it supports it. Yeah. Uh, and then Symantec Endpoint Protection, which is all versions on all platforms because they have like you know, Windows, Linux, uh, Android, etc. Uh, Symantec Email Security, Symantec Protection Engine, and Symantec Protection for SharePoint Servers. And mm-hmm. on and on and on. They didn't list them all because there's a lot of different ones. You know, they have a semantic protection for, you know, your email server, your SharePoint server, every other server. You yeah, can. yeah, yeah. Um, you see, some of these products cannot be automatically updated, and the administrator must take immediate action to protect their network. Symantec has published a number of advisories uh, linked here in the show notes and on the Google site uh, with details on how to do that. So a bunch of these, it's not as easy as just the software updates itself like normal. Uh, some of these vulnerabilities require some manual intervention to fix. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which means they're going to linger. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so now to dig into some of these vulnerabilities, uh, the first one is in the unpacker system, uh, which in this case, uh, Symantec runs in the kernel, which is a really bad idea. Oh, boy. So say, uh, many developers will be familiar with executing packers like UPX. So uh, they're tools intended to reduce the size of an executable by compressing them. This causes a problem for antivirus products because it changes how the executable looks, right? So packers are basically designed, um, the, the regular ones are designed to take your regular executable program, compress it down to be smaller, and then on, in the, at the front of it, install a little bit of assembly code mm. that will start the program and extract, you know, uncompress it into memory and let it run. Yeah, okay. So basically, it's, it's like a self-extracting zip file that also runs the command. Yeah, okay. Uh, hmm. But it basically it allows you to take a really big program and make it take up less space. Why is that in the kernel, though? I mean, it must be a core well, so, function that's doing all well, the time. So in this particular case, for Symantec, they need to unpack it to look inside the executable and see if it's okay. uh, a virus, right? Okay. So we'll get more to it. Uh, anyway, some packers can be designed to obfuscate the executable. Uh, they make it harder for virus scanners to match uh, against their signature database. So some of them is like every time the virus jumps from one computer to the next, it uh, changes some things in the in the packer so that the file doesn't have the same signature. Mm-hmm. So the virus scanner doesn't detect it. Okay. Even if it, even if they picked up the sample that affected the first computer, right. the one on the second, third, and fourth computer is actually different. Right. I wonder how that must be actually more common than they want to even let you know because it seems yeah. like something that would almost be a, a default thing to do now. And then the heuristics uh, system that they use to detect when a program is doing something it shouldn't and then, oh, it's probably a virus. Uh, again, those depend on looking at certain things in the code. Mm-hmm. And if you pack them by you know, compression and encryption and so on, it makes it harder to see those. Hmm. Say, uh, antivirus vendors solve this problem with two solutions. First, they write dedicated unpackers to reverse the operation of the most common packers, like the ones, commercial ones that are designed to shrink a program. Hmm. Um, 
And then they use emulation to handle less common or custom packers because most virus scanner or viruses are going to come with one specifically that the virus scanner is not going to have a built-in unpacker for, right? Uh, and so they have to use emulation to do that. Uh, the problem with both of these solutions is that they're hugely complicated and prone to vulnerabilities. It's extremely challenging to make code uh, of this type safe. Uh, we recommend sandboxing and a security deployment lifecycle, but vendors will often cut uh, corners here. So normally what you would do is do it in a sandbox so if the code ends up ex- uh, overflowing a buffer or end up getting executed or whatever, it's inside a sandbox and can't do anything. But most of the vendors don't, virus, antivirus vendors don't bother with that because it's a bunch of extra work, right? Uh, because yeah, of this, unpackers and emulators continue to be a huge source of vulnerabilities. If you check the uh, Project Zero archives, uh, they have links to finding problems in the unpackers for Komodo, ESET, Kaspersky, FireEye, and basically every other antivirus vendor. Mm, well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so this is a. Uh, I was wondering, I mean, it felt like they're talking in very. Um, specific terms like they're just stating things specifically like this is how it is but when you look at they're citing komodo eset kaspersky fire i mean they're they're looking yeah, yeah it's like, okay it's not just that this code it's uh, not just people, their observations either yeah it's like people often script this code because it's really complicated uh and you know that it's a hard thing to do uh so it's a very hard thing to do correctly um so yeah, um, so then Google says, let's look at the example from Symantec and Norton Antivirus. This vulnerability has the unusual characteristic that Symantec runs their unpacker in the kernel. Uh, I think it's mostly to protect it from the virus trying to disable the antivirus and so uh-huh, on. Okay. I don't know the exact justification for why their packer, unpacker runs in the kernel. Mm, okay, that's a good idea though. Uh, reviewing Symantec's unpacker, we noticed a trivial buffer overflow when the section's size of raw data field is greater than the size of the image field. When this happens, Symantec will allocate size of image bytes, but then copy all the available data into that buffer when the size of the raw data is actually bigger. That means you're copying a big block into a small block, which means you overflow the end of it and overwrite a chunk of memory. Uh, Because Symantec uses a filter driver to intercept all system I.O., just emailing uh, a file of this type to a victim or sending them a link to an exploit is enough to trigger it. The victim oh, does not need to actually open the file in oh. the attachment oh, or interact man. with it in any way. Oh, 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 man. Oh, Alan. Oh, no. So, like a JPEG <laughs> that it tries to display could set this off. Uh, oh. Because no interaction is necessary to exploit it, this is a wormable vulnerability with potentially devastating consequences to Norton and Semantic customers. Uh, attackers could easily compromise an entire enterprise fleet with a vulnerability like this, right? You send out one bulk email and every machine is compromised. Uh, it's a significant trade-off in terms of increased attack surface. You know, at some point, um, never administrators should keep scenarios like this in mind when deciding to deploy antivirus in the first place. It's a significant trade-off in terms of increased attack surface. So because virus scanners are so full of vulnerabilities... Sometimes you'd be better off without one. Jeez. You know, that's not the first time we've had that sort of con- – well, it's not even really conjecture. I mean, this is the fir- that's not the first time I think that statement's been made on this show is what I'm trying yep. to say. Is there's, yep. We've talked about this before. And to that end, I think maybe I've asked you, but do, do you run antivirus on, on your Windows machine? I, I haven't since Windows 98. Yeah. I had that McAfee thing. I forget where it came from. I didn't buy it. 
Right. But I had like the original CD. I think somebody bought it and didn't like and gave it to me or something. I, I had ESET for a little while because I was deploying it for clients and I thought, okay, maybe I should live with this. And so I had Nod32 on my machine for a little while when I had a Windows laptop for IT stuff. But, but I think uh, most for me it was like during high school, well, especially uh, that's when the on-access scanners first became a big thing. So instead of you know doing a virus scan of your computer, they would scan files as you use them. Mm-hmm. But it just crippled the load speed of video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so yeah. that resulted didn't get tossed out the window, and I've just never had one. <laughs> yeah, and I've just I have always found that um, basically safe computing is the if you're on Windows and you just practice safe computing and back up your data. Mm-hmm. That's really the best. That's the best practice. So, but I guess you know, as corporations, and I and I have to, you know, I just make this obviously clear. I'm aware of this. They can't. They can't make that choice. They have to take steps, and they also have end users that don't use that don't practice safe computing. So they are particularly in a tough spot. So to tell them you're almost better off without antivirus, I, I don't it's know hard. if that's true. Yeah, that's harder to say. Well, especially when you're, uh, you know, you need something that's going to actually detect some of these APT style malwares that are really particularly going after stuff. Um, but yeah, basically the antivirus companies need to do a lot better job of actually solidifying their own products. Yeah. And I think um, you know, something else we talked about a while ago was this um zero trust initiative and things where um under a license that allowed you to audit the code but not use it for anything, um antivirus com- or security companies would release their products in a way where you can audit the source code. Oh, and uh, yeah. maybe compile it yourself or be able to use a reproducible build to ensure that the binary you're running was built from the source code that you reviewed and actually get to look at problems like this mm. uh, um, and have them fix it. You know, uh, before I run this antivirus, I'm going to have made sure somebody audited it and it's actually not full of terribleness. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's seems pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, you know, um, the Zero Trust Initiative originally was more for security appliances, mm-hmm. uh, like things like the the Fudu and yep. the Links and a bunch of other stuff. But um, it could apply just as equally to virus scanners like this yeah. and boxes like the FireEye boxes that we talked about. You know, so I've, I've never really had any particular issue using ClamAV on a server. Um, well, there was a vulnerability in Clam AV last week, though. Yeah, right? I know, I'm just saying, like, I've never had, like, it's never, like, killed my system performance. Why I've never had any issue, like, what is it really doing? But even there, I've never, I've never felt that it's been absolutely necessary either. So, right. Anyways, I digress. It's just, it's hard to say that to the enterprise user. So, yeah. Uh, so another vulnerability in Symantec is uh, they have a special uh, decomposer, which is kind of like an unpacker for PowerPoint files. It turns out the Microsoft PowerPoint file format is really hard to dissect. Uh, and so there's a bunch of complicated code that uh, can check metadata and in particular, you know, see if there's a macro inside of it to try to block it and so on. Uh, so there's vulnerability in that one, uh, which, you know, you can trivially exploit. Uh, there's another vulnerability in the advanced heuristic protection mode or uh, in the not enterprise version, they call it bloodhound heuristic mode. I kind of like that. I love that they changed the name. Yeah. One's enterprisey and all. I don't know. You know I think enterprise. I think enterprise uh, users want bloodhounds too. I think they should keep no, it. Advanced heuristics. 
<laughs> Boy, isn't isn't that a brilliant piece right there? Just advanced heuristics is such such. They're advanced both, heuristic protection. They are both such crap names in their own right. Right. Yeah. One is mumbo corporate mumbo jumbo uh, buzz speak, and the other is placating to like the lowest con- common denominator consumer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so. This is a feature you have to actually turn on or turn up to the most uh, aggressive mode in order to exploit it, but uh, it you can exploit that as well. So while the first bunch of these vulnerabilities are all exploitable without or with the default settings and without user interaction, uh, there are some other bugs that you know require you to actually turn the protection up, mm-hmm. and then it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very nice. Yeah. So then, then we have the other problem. All right. Uh, as with all software developers, antivirus vendors have to do vulnerability management. Mm-hmm. Uh, this means monitoring for new releases of any third-party software that's used in your product. Sure. Watching published vulnerability announcements and distributing updates. Um, nobody enjoys doing this, but it's an integral part of secure software development. Symantec totally dropped the ball here. A quick look at the decomposer hmm. library shipped by Symantec shows that they're using code uh, derived from open source libraries like libmspack, which is the one to un- open up the PowerPoint files, and unrarsrc, uh, which is some code that deals with allowing you to look inside a rar file. Um, and they haven't updated those from the open source versions in the last seven years. Oh. And this is a security so, product here. Yeah. So So there's... Known vulnerabilities for MS uh, or libmspack that have been fixed, but Symantec hasn't bothered to pull in the updates in at least seven years. Which probably means they pulled in the library the day they decided to do that and haven't looked at it since. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Google says dozens of public vulnerabilities in these libraries affect Symantec, uh, some with publicly available exploits. I mean, off-the-shelf exploits that work right now. <laughs> Uh, we sent Symantec some examples, and they ver- verified that they had fallen behind on releases. <laughs> yeah, we're just a little behind, you know, for the last yeah. seven years. Yeah, there's there's behind, and then there's seven plus years, which is pretty much definitely didn't bother to look at all. Not only that, but that means like individual versions of the product came out, and they never bothered to even bo- to like check on that Almost, part of yeah. the product. So we see this all the time in embedded stuff. Like, remember the UPnP and, like, every yeah, oh, router yeah. Yeah. that you buy off the shelf yeah. is, like, a version from, like, 2004? Oh, yeah. Because that's when they built the first firmware And they just copied the, the, the default example spec. Like, yeah. all right, that's a good implementation. We'll use that. Yeah. Uh, so they, you know, once they pull it in once, they make some little local modifications. They didn't want to do patch management, so they just screw it, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, there's some decent amount of expertise in this nowadays because... What is every open source operating system but a collection of other packages yeah. that are sucked in and managed and made sure that the vulnerable versions aren't used anymore? Well, and, so and there, is, there are ways There to, are workflows that make this really easy. And there are ways to stay advised of these issues. I mean, we yep. use those same outlets here to cover yeah. it and present it to the audience <laughs> on this show. Like, this yeah. podcast can manage to do it. Why can't Semantic? You know? Yes. Seems doable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. So, as well as all the vulnerabilities described on the Google page there, they also found a collection of other stack buffer overflows, memory corruptions, oh, and so on and so on and so on. There's a link to their bug track where they have a list of all the different vulnerabilities. Holy smokes. Semantic. So, yeah. So 
Uh, Google thanks Symantec for quickly solving all these problems. I'm not sure. They didn't release a timeline, so I don't know what their definition of quickly is in this case. <laughs> and since some of them are, it's just not an auto update, I'm not sure about uh, what some of the mitigation steps are for some of these. Uh, but uh, if you use any of these Symantec Norton products, you should uh, follow the link and uh, do the steps to get your system secured. Hmm. Jeez, yeah. Get your system secured from your security product. Yep. <laughs> well, all right, Alan, let's take a moment and thank Ting for sponsoring this episode of the TechSnap program. My mobile service provider, and it was so obvious once I started reviewing Ting, it's mobile that makes sense. You only pay for what you use. Ting just takes your minutes and your messages and your megabytes. That's it. You just, whatever your usage is, they add it up, and that's your bill. It's $6 for a line. So if you want one line or three lines, you just pay six for each one and then usage. It's really straightforward. There's no contracts, no other termination fees, truly and completely no BS mobile service, no gimmicks. I love it. Average line, like 23 bucks after your minutes and your messages and your megabytes. They have great customer service. They have a CDMA and GSM network, which is great for me because here at the JB1 studio, I get fantastic speeds on both. But back out where I live, out in the boondocks, I only, only get CDMA service. And so that's why it's great that I have the choice. And I really appreciate that, especially on the Nexus devices. They give you a great dashboard to manage all of it. Go look at some of their devices and see what I'm talking about. They, all of these are unlocked. Like you can get the SIM card for 9 bucks, and then you just pay for what you use. Now, if you have a, like a security system, an alarm system, uh, an Internet of Things device that needs a, a GSM or CDMA connection, check out their SIM cards for 9 bucks. For example, Noah and Chase, they use these SIM cards in their security systems to just get alerts and notifications of movement and activity like that, and it's it's peanuts. It's absolutely nothing. Uh, and and for, Noah, for example, he'll probably tell you about it next week, I would imagine, when he traveled internationally, he's able to bring his Ting phone with him. Because it's unlocked, he can put a local GSM SIM in there, and he's good to go. He doesn't have to worry. He doesn't have to call Ting and get special permission. It's like that with everything. You're, you're, you're tethering or if you want to use Hotspot, that's just included with the Ting service. They have the Kyocero Dura, which is I think is like the peak of the feature phones. If you just want a week-long battery life, something with a simple camera, say you get in an accident, and just makes calls, 63 bucks, unlocked, no contract. But probably the thing to really talk about right now is you could get the LG G4 for $238 out of the door. TechSnap.ting.com. Go there, get our discount. Take a little bit off. TechSnap.ting.com. That's a marshmallow phone. That's, it's last year's flagship. You can get it now. Unlocked. No contract. $238. You pay for what you use. Also, if you just want to check out Ting and support the show by visiting TechSnap.ting.com, go look at their blog. They got a new post up about ditching cable TV and cutting the cord. Cut that cord and say goodbye to hidden fees. TechSnap.ting.com. And a huge thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I have my... Ooh, ooh. I wonder if they have the uh, the Netgear MiFi device, because that's what I'm... Yep, there it is, Netgear Zing. 139 bucks. So this is a $6 a month hotspot. If you don't use it, you could actually turn the line off and then just reorder, get yourself a new SIM and turn it back on when you're ready to start using it, or you can suspend service. But at $6 a month, you're not feeling super guilty if you don't use it a bunch every night. It's, it's great, perfect for me, because, you know, 
I'm not on the road every single week, but after you know, a couple of times a year, maybe three, four, five, six, seven times a year, I go on a road trip. Okay, those times I bring this with me and I use the Netgear Zing and I have internet and I can watch exactly how much I'm using on the LCD screen. It's touchscreen too, so you can see how many Wi-Fi devices are connected right there. You don't have to use like their crappy web admin interface that mm-hmm. always sucks. I love this, and also it's got a big old battery in there. So check that out. You can get it for $139. It was $164, but if you go to techsnap.ting.com, you get it for $139. And uh, this is what I'm taking on, on my road trip to keep me connected. They don't always have it in stock either. And so what's great about this, when I get back from the road trip, I put this back in the drawer, and I'm not paying like 50 bucks a month or something for a data line that I don't really use. It's a, such a nice way to use Ting. They're super flexible. Techsnap.ting.com. Check them out. You can call them, too, and speak to a real human being. Thanks, Ting. All right, Alan, should we talk about a massive botnet that took down, I think, what, some cameras? Or tell me about this. It was an interesting headline I saw you grab. Yeah. So a botnet made up of CCTV cameras has been conducting denial of service attacks. This is the best thing ever. A botnet that... What I mean, are these like machines running Windows on them embedded or something? Like, how can these cameras? Oh, well, be? the DVRs are yes. Ah, uh, so <laughs> if you remember back to March in TechSnap episode two hundred and fifty nine, we reported about a security researcher uh, from the RSA who found that seventy different CCTV DVR vendors were just reselling uh, the same Chinese device uh, right. with the same firmware, but branding it as their own. That was a great story. Right. Yeah. And so it turns out these 70 different brands are all vulnerable because they're all actually the same device, white box device from the Chinese manufacturer with a different logo slapped on it. Well, the security researcher found a whole bunch of very critical vulnerabilities in that in the firmware, and he notified the vendor about it, but they refused to fix the problem. So uh, now criminals have uh, exploited one or more of these known vulnerabilities <laughs> to turn all of these DVR devices into a giant botnet. That didn't take too long. Uh, Unlike a typical botnet, which is made up of you know regular desktop computers or laptops that are turned on and off all the time, and you know if it's a laptop, maybe it doesn't have an internet connection a bunch of the time, or only really low speed Wi-Fi and so on, where and where a user will notice sluggish performance and maybe use an antivirus sure. to get rid of it or whatever. Right. right. Infected embedded devices tend to be always on and to perform. And no one notices when they're running a little slow because they're doing something else, right? They're always slow. And, yeah. and you, well, can and even, you don't sit and use it, right? You could even see in some environments if your camera system is, server is sending a lot of data, your DVR is sending, you might just think people are streaming the video feed off the box. You might not even think it's a unusual. It's a video device. Of course it's sending a lot of data. That's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> so a botnet of over 25,000 of these uh, right. compromised CCTV systems is being used to conduct layer 7 denial of service attacks against various businesses. Hmm. So the big difference there is instead of just flooding it with data uh, and trying to you know get the most out of uh, the pipe that the user has, uh, that's like a layer 2, right? That's just a volume. You're just flooding data yeah, at them. Sure. With a layer 7, you're targeting like the web server itself or mm-hmm. the application, the application on the and server trying to like use up all the CPU time. Um, the advantage with those is they take a lot less bandwidth from the cameras, but they take a bit more CPU power. But really, they take a lot of CPU power on the target. Uh, well, since these are all full computers, uh, the DVR systems, um, that they were able to just do this. And so they, uh, they used 25,000 of them. One of them, they targeted a jewelry store. So the jewelry store paid uh, a company that provides a web application firewall to basically protect them from these type of attacks. Oh, okay. Um, 
But the company that runs that noticed that unlike most attackers, instead of you know admitting defeat when they move behind a firewall, uh, like this is a so web application firewall sees the incoming request to the web server, then decides if they're from a botnet or from a real user before sending them to the actual web server. Mm-hmm. So it can filter out a lot of the attack traffic. So uh, unlike most attackers, instead of just admitting that the web application firewall is stopping the attack and giving up and going attack someone else, uh, the attackers stepped up the attack and increased the rate they were using uh, and kept the attack going for days. Whereas <laughs> most botnets don't do that because most botnets lose strength the longer the attack is sustained sure. because machines go away, um, you know, People whose machine was part of the botnet noticed that, hey, my thing's using up all my internet and slowing everything in the house down. I'm going to fix it. Or, um, you know, this, it's slowing down the computer. Uh, or, yeah, the machine just shut off. It gets isolated or uh, it gets reported. Uh, you know, the person under attack reports the IP addresses of the people attacking them to their ISPs. Or the machine gets disconnected because it was infected or all these other things mean that the botnet shrinks the longer you run the attack. So they often run it for a little while, stop wait for mm-hmm. things to quiet down and then attack somebody else. Whereas this one, uh, when they noticed the, uh, the victim was defending themselves, they cranked it up instead. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. So the fact that the botnet is made up of embedded CCTV DVR devices uh, gives it more staying power. Sure. Uh, right? These are not likely to be considered the source of a problem. Like Even if you do get an abuse report saying a computer at your network is infected and is attacking us, and because it's behind NAT, it's going to be, you know, it doesn't tell you which computer. It just says, somebody on your network is attacking us, and, you know, at, at, from your IP address, and you look, and it's like, well, that's every, it could be any one of the computers here. You're going to, you know, check all the desktop Windows computers for malware. You're not going to think to check your uh, CCTV system for being infected, right? Well, and, and, like, because of the reasons you outlined earlier, you're, it's going to take you likely longer to diagnose that that's where the issue is at. And at the same time... It's going to become way more commonplace for more and more businesses to deploy devices like this as the cost of these cameras come down, as Wi-Fi and Ethernet is available to all, you know, in businesses, it means it's becoming super commonplace. So the networking infrastructure is there to deploy the cameras. The cost of these DVRs is going way down. The cost of the cameras is going way down. You're going to have way more businesses uh, deploying them. So that's going to mean way more devices out there. So on one end, small businesses... Are, are, are going to be adopting this technology. On the other end, Alan, now imagine you go all like Mission Impossible on something like this, and you go after, say, a, a large institution that has a big internal monitoring system, like yeah. your Microsofts or your, your Apples that probably have huge internal DVR systems. Uh, I wonder and if... big, fat internet connections. Yeah, I wonder if you could start seeing... Just all kinds of things, or or even even if somebody specifically targeted at a, a company and used their own surveillance system against them to knock off individual computers, or knock off the monitoring system, make, you know, knock it offline, or yep. things like that. Is the these are probably what if I don't I don't recall, but probably what old Linux two dot something machines running in these DVRs that are just an ancient unpatched Linux stack that has a network connection. And they get, and these are the these kinds of devices get sold get sold on eBay and repurposed on the market all the time. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, this is going to be a very interesting problem. And you see here in this chart they have in the show notes, Taiwan seems to be where it's happening the most. Yep. 
Uh, but USA coming in number two at 12%. And that number, I would think as small businesses adopt these kinds of things, as the technology gets cheaper and more available, yeah. as people put it in their homes. And if you scroll down, you can see uh, the different versions of the, the brands used on the firmware. You see, the, one is, uh, the generic one makes up like 50% of the ones that are being attacked, but a bunch of other yeah. branded ones that are slightly modified have the vulnerability as well. H.264 DVR is the generic brand. Hey, I want that one. I want that one. But uh, yeah, Provision, ISR, QC, and Q's Talk also there on the list right there. Wow. Fascinating. I've deployed a few of these systems before, and I've wondered about that. You know, they have hard drives in them, so you could save your programs and run them. And it's just, yep. <laughs> wow, what a what an interesting what an interesting story, Alan. And I don't know, do you, uh, you have any other thoughts on uh, on the possibilities of the future? Uh, you know, when when security researchers find flaws in your product and report them to you, and you actively decide not to solve it, this is what happens. Yeah, and you know, it also shows you once again the vendors that are basing their products off of this generic stuff aren't necessarily doing their due diligence, like Semantic yep. wasn't in the last story. Yeah, you know, uh, you really have to um, look at it and decide what vendor you're going to use to to grab your white box from because if you're not going to build this software yourself and don't know what it's going to be like. You know what? That's a great spot to mention IX Systems. Yes. Speaking of making a good choice and doing your due diligence, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there and do a little due diligence for yourself and find out why you're going to want to choose IX Systems for your next project. The hardware base is the most important decision you're making for what your services run on, what your infrastructure runs on, and that's why we recommend IX Systems. Small projects, large projects, insanely huge projects. IX Systems can build it for you. Of course, you've heard of FreeNAS. You've probably even heard of TrueNAS now because it's getting quite a name for it. They're involved big time in the storage market, but really all capacities of server, uh, including yeah. even I, w- I would imagine if anybody was going to get into like building the ultimate, ultimate server. Come on, who could beat IX? Who, who says they haven't already? Who? Yeah, I mean, no, they have, well, right? But who could beat IX? The other day days? was like, yeah, like uh, what was it? Four yeah, way. Yeah. Uh, 16 cores each and like mm-hmm, six mm-hmm. terabytes of RAM in a machine. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Or, or this TrueNAS that they installed for mm-hmm. somebody that. Uh, Look at all that disk. That particular version is <laughs> 1.2 petabytes, but they can build it up uh, over four petabytes. Yeah. The one you're talking about had like the RAM up the sides of the case. And yeah. it was, yeah, it was nuts. Yeah, it's a little bit yeah. further back on the blog. But, uh, well, the big thing there is, you know, even myself, which I, I kind of consider myself an expert on deciding what hardware to put in a server. And, and what I would need. Hmm. Uh, but even I defer to them. Like, you ju- I just explained, all right, I'm, us- I'm taking the server and I'm going to do this, this, and this with it. And I need to make sure I get at least this level of performance out of it. And they make recommendations that I just, I, I can't keep up with the hardware as well as they do. Yeah. I'm right? not they gonna, didn't breathe this stuff. I'm not going to lie. Uh, my first sales interaction with them, I was a little bit, I was a little bit of a diva. I was like, just... Let me just let me just tell you, build this and uh, just ship it to me when it's ready. Uh, and I was like, I don't, you don't need to talk to me. You don't, you don't need to talk to me. Yeah. I know what I want. And uh, by the end of the conversation, I was so super glad that uh, I was able to swallow that and listen to what they needed because they saved me money and the system's been running amazing. It's been such a, it's been, it's been such a workhorse. That's what's great about IX. So they have really great sales, really great post sales. All of the staff is really tops. In fact, the other thing that I think you'll note if you've ever gotten to go to a community event is you get to interact with these people and they're, they're really passionate about this work, and they're very genuine people. Uh, they have a post. I've never been to Usenix, um, mm-hmm. but I guess Usenix ATC 2016 well, conference recap yeah. is up on their blog. Well, Usenix is the association, and they have like 100 conferences a year. But yeah, this is the ATC one. 
The ATC Usenix Conference. The, and, well, uh, this is the big one. It's the annual technical conference. It's oh, just okay. kind of across everything. Whereas they have you know security conferences. and mm-hmm. st- uh, The one I went to in January was the Usenix Storage Conference. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And so they did, uh, of course, IX on the scene all the time. If you ever go to one of these events, uh, I would encourage you to ch- chat with them. They're either usually at their own booths or you can find them also at the FreeBSD Foundation booths too mm-hmm. a lot of the times. And uh, strike up a conversation, ask them your questions, and then uh, check out iX Systems. Go to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap to support the show. They also have a white paper there you could download. It just sort of helps with everybody in the process move yep. to a new hardware platform, and it's, it's worth it. So, yep. Alan, I, I was just complaining before the show started that I have seen a lot more ads that are HTML5, uh, video ads specifically. Autoplay video ads. On I'm on, like, Chrome on Android, and I'm scrolling. I'm watching ads all the time now, and I'm... I'm not so sure I'm feeling good about the post-flash revolution, to be honest. It's been it, – it, I feel like it's killing my battery. It's killing my – it's killing uh, the data. If I Thankfully, I'm generally on Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never really considered the security aspects of it. I've always yeah. figured that flash was way worse security-wise. So uh, I'm kind of kind of interested in this next story. Yeah. So uh, GeoEdge, which is a company that does, like, advertising security, auditing, and so on. Uh, they're an ad integration integrity company. Anyway, uh, for a long time, many people have railed against Flash and accused it of being the root of all Ill, evil when it comes to malvertising and so yeah, on. Yeah. So a quote from the article here says, For the last several years, Adobe Flash has been an enemy of the online community. <laughs> in general, uh, the position is well-deserved. Uh, there were more than 300 vulnerabilities found in the Flash player during 2015 alone, making it the mm-hmm. most uh, vulnerable PC software of the year. Uh, the study starts off with a comparison between Flash and HTML5-based advertisements and actually looks at the pros and cons of Flash versus HTML5. Although, you know, it, the switch is kind of a foregone conclusion at this point. But Right, right. Um, the first thing is Flash ads tend to actually be smaller. Uh, HTML5 ads are on average 100 kilobytes larger uh, and uh, therefore use more bandwidth and more battery. Hmm, okay. So Flash ads tend to be smaller in file size? Yeah. and Okay. Right. Because um, the it's compiled down into like a Swift file, right? Yeah, that's it, true. And and because you can actually do animation as a vector, mm-hmm. whereas with HTML5 video type, you, you're having to do um, you know a video. It's all H.264. Yeah, uh, and so that can be a big deal on mobile. Although in the end, there aren't flash ads on mobile, so there's not really a, a choice there. Mm-hmm. Um, Flash ads can be more work to create since they're not responsive, right? Uh, for Flash, you have to create a different Flash file for each different size and shape of ad, uh, right? You know, like the big banner across the top, although those aren't as common anymore, and like this size square and that size square and, and so on. Uh, each one requires a different one, whereas with HTML5, you can use JavaScript and make it responsive or whatever. Uh, but, you know, depending on the type of ad, that may or may not make sense. Um, HTML5 ads don't require a plugin to run, which is definitely an advantage. Uh, but older browsers don't support HTML5. Now, that's becoming less of an issue as those older devices kind of dwindle and, and people stop using them, but uh, it's the main reason why Flash is still around at this point. It turns out Flash ads tend to provide better picture quality because they support uh, subpixels and actually huh. for blending and so on, hmm. whereas your regular HTML5, the pixel is the smallest unit. Uh, Obviously, like we mentioned, HTML5 provides better support for mobile. Uh, mobile uh, Flash on mobile is very rare, but it does happen. I, I do have a Flash player. Not great, oh, though. I don't, I don't have a Flash player on my 
Nexus. Android Now, but my old Nexus yeah. S did have one. I don't even think they make it anymore for Android, right? Well, I think I had to sideload it in the first place anyway. <laughs> <but yeah>. Okay. <laughs> uh, the uh, other thing is that currently there's actually a larger community of developers for Flash ads. So if you want to get a Flash ad done, there's a much greater pool of people to pick from, and so it's usually cheaper. Uh, but obviously that'll change as more and more ads switch over to HTML5 uh, there. And then... Uh, Another advantage is that HTML5 spec is not controlled by a single company like Adobe, right? It's an open uh, Internet Engineering Task Force working group. Um, but it turns out Flash provides better optimization because you're comp- uh, compiling it down instead of just having this blob, uh, it can tend to optimize better. Uh, HTML5 provides better usability, though. Uh, you know, it has better support for people using something like a screen reader. Uh, or, you know, if they're zooming the page, mm-hmm. the ad will scale, whereas Flash won't. Uh, and so it's definitely much better for people that may be hard of hearing or have vision problems or and so on. And there's better semantic support, right? In, in an ad, you're actually using divs and dags and, and so on. Okay. So it can also support translation better, I suppose. Uh, but anyway, the study finds that killing off Flash will not solve the security problems. It turns out HTML5 has plenty of its own security issues. Uh, or rather, the f- framework we use to do advertising still has the issues even if we take Flash out of the equation. So they say, even if Flash is prohibited, malvertising can still be inserted in the first two stages of the video ad delivery pipeline. Uh, the proponents pushing uh, for Flash to be prohibited from use in an ad creative are saying that HTML5 is the remedy that can handle security threats in the advertising industry. It stands to reason that if the ad unit itself is clean, then the user won't have any problems. Unfortunately, this is an inaccurate statement. Malvertising attacks using video ads were already occurring in late 2015 and early 2016 uh, without the need for Flash. So uh, I think one page down from where you showed last, uh, that one, think anyway uh so in a typical flash malvertising campaign the ad itself uh contains the malware and it uh does an external call uses the external call interface in flash to run some javascript uh malicious javascript and that creates a pop-up uh which if you scroll back up or down i guess it was the oh uh the chrome pop-up there it it shows this pop-up pretending like you need a chrome security update yeah um and if you click accept, then it, you just click accept, and now it can uh, run something <laughs> or install something. Yeah. In an HTML5-based attack, the malvertising campaign payload is not the actual advertisement, but in the VAST or VPAID, which are these uh, the algorithm, uh, the protocol or whatever, the infrastructure that's used to deliver the ads. In that metadata, there's a tracking URL that the video player is supposed to hit to let the ad company keep track of how many people saw the ad. If that URL happens to, say, be to an Angular exploit kit, uh, this causes the user to silently navigate to the exploit kit where they get infected with no required user interaction. <laughs> so now, in an HTML5 ad, I end up getting anglered and get drive-by infected, yeah. whereas with Flash, I would have had to click to get infected. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Although, it's entirely possible the same ad, uh, the same attack would work with both HTML5 and Flash sure, ads, sure. and I would get screwed either way. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. likely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the second scenario shows how the ad unit itself is not the only piece of the malvertising pie. Uh, the main root of the video ad malvertising problem is, unfortunately, fundamental. 
the VAST or VPAID standards, which were developed in 2012, provide extensive abilities uh, so that the ad industry people can create rich ad experiences, which means just really annoying ads. Rich ad experience definitely means annoying. Mm -hmm. Um, Since these standards allowed advertisers to receive data about the user, they allow for third-party codes to be inserted inside the ad. Once a third-party code is allowed, there's an open door for bad actors to perpetrate uh, malicious activities like inserting malicious code. So we would have to change the standard to just not allow the ads to have their own code. Hmm. And that might stop malvertising, but... And that seems like you would eliminate like uh, custom tracking solutions and whatnot, and all this use. stuff. And the ad people, and then the ad people that. wouldn't be able to find value in the ads, and it would sort of crush the yeah. industry. And then, mm-hmm. how do websites monetize visits? And then, where does yeah, all the look free so, content uh, go? And at what level is like, well, we we allow some API that allows you to do certain restricted things, but not anything. Yeah, and it's controlled by the browser. But then, at what point the browser has the duty to allow the user to just opt out of all of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, at the same time that means that's the only place where we can enforce the user having the ability to opt out. So by forcing the advertising industry to do something like that would also force them to allow opt out and so on, right? Mm. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is now that we have debunked the idea that malvertising would be eliminated if the industry prohibited the use of flash in their ads, we need to discuss solutions. Okay. Uh, they have a couple of proposals in the PDF if you want to uh, go read about them. But the interesting thing is, even if malicious ads could be eliminated by better screening, you know, if the ad networks actually checked every ad before they let it run and didn't let people modify the ads and so on, so that no malicious ads ever made it onto the ad networks, you know, if the ad networks actually did their job, sure, uh, malactors could still compromise the ad network, right? If you hack into an ad network, then you can cause all the ads it delivers to be malicious, yeah, or inject malicious code into clean ads, uh, you know. Wouldn't it be funny if, if that ad for the you know GMC truck you saw on full page ad you saw on, on, on a big newspaper website was actually the one delivering the malware? Hmm. So yeah, in the end, maybe we need to stop allowing advertising to have the ability to execute code in our browser. Mm-hmm. It'd be better for our privacy and security, and probably better overall. But yeah, what does that do to the funding model of the internet? Yeah, well. There's that. I wanted to pick up on something that the chat room noticed and was commenting on just to get clarification because I bet we'll otherwise get emails about it. Uh, At the top, they talked about one of the benefits of Flash video over HTML5 ads was uh, better picture quality. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was wondering, the question then that came in through the chat room was, does that mean when I'm using HTML5 playback to watch YouTube videos that I'm getting lower quality? This isn't for the video. This is for ads. Right. So, like, it's just – it's the blending and stuff. So when you do an animation – in Flash. It's vectors. Uh, because you can do, yeah, it's vectors. And because you have the subpixels, uh, when it does the, the anti-aliasing to like round the corners, it can do a better job because it has more information. Yeah, it doesn't it's, mean that Flash is inherently better at video playback. Right. In, in the end, the video quality you get is exactly what was in the video. Yeah. And it's rendered through uh, hardware acceleration. Yeah. So HTML5 and Flash, the video quality will same. be the same. In fact, on YouTube, the Flash player is simply just playing H.264 video. Yeah, in both cases, yeah, it's just the same thing. Uh, this is mostly comparing animation type ads, uh, where you know the regular old flash ads are being replaced with uh, HTML5 video. Ads. I think you know the. I think the really the 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 core thing that I still don't really see f- the best. I think the core thing that I still see Flash really doing the best job of is live streams. Uh, everybody's live stream that I watch that's flash based. There's usually the flash player. 
you know, it handles buffering of some degree. It can, it seems to handle uh, yes, bandwidth spikes in and out a little bit. So, so HLS has a, a huge buffer, and its main problem is that it's that much more delayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the buffering is done differently because you're downloading the video in chunks and right. as a stream, it's is quite a bit different. Yeah, but yes, yeah. Uh, RTMP, even though the protocol is terrible and doesn't support multi bitrate as nicely, although multi bitrate can kind of do. Uh, but it doesn't support DVR, whereas with mm. HLS, you mm. have that option. Now. Mm. Yeah, because, yeah, I suppose you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, because you actually have the chunks and so, so on. So do but. you think for, like, a lot of live streams, Flash will remain in production for a while, or do you think it's transitioning At quickly? At this point, we're seeing a lot of stuff stay on Flash. We've had a couple of customers move to mostly HLS because they intended to use the DVR features, but that's mostly for sports, uh, where, you know, kind of... Being able to pause the live stream or rewind a little bit is useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not as useful if you want to interact with the live chat room, though. Right, exactly. And so I think for JV, it, there's not that much value in having DVR, yeah. especially since you already have the archive system where people can watch what was on the live stream the other day or whatever. So then that makes and, Flash sort of a more attractive yeah. for a couple of reasons uh, because a lot of people have bad bandwidth. Yeah, yeah, and the lower latency, so we can interact quicker with the chat room, which yeah. is a nice advantage. So you could see they were on. To, I guess what it kind of take away is they were, they were on to the basics. Some basic ideas in Flash were sound. It just was such a freaking security nightmare that gave people. Yes, if if Flash was a standard and there were two different players, then right? It'd probably be in a lot better state right now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Uh, uh, particular, I just I just have an old, you know. Uh, Geez, I'm old. Does anyone remember when advertising on the internet was just animated GIF files? Yeah. And there was no JavaScript involved at all? Yeah. And, you know, somehow that worked. Like, you literally put an image tag that went to, like, a CGI script, and it just decided which GIF file to send. And that was the entirety of advertising. To be be honest, if they just showed static images and and each advertising campaign had its own URL. uh, Well, like, Imagers invented these, like, GIF Vs or whatever, right? Yep, Yep. Which is, like... Almost video in a GIF file. Yeah, we but, could use those. But when it, it comes, it's a static file with no code yes, execution. Exactly. So when they and say it allows they, videos, they, the but reason not they, sound. The reason they say they need code execution is because they need to be able to do tracking. But if they did tracking, they could just have custom URLs for each campaign, just like when you go to ixsystems.com/slash/techsnap. That's a custom yeah, but, URL uh, for a campaign, and you yeah, can well, track that on the, that. That gives you the click-through tracking. The yeah. bigger problem is that the ad, they don't trust the advertising networks. Is the problem ah. Because the advertising network is the one who takes the money from the advertiser and then doles it out to the website. So it's in their interest to uh, under-report to the website and over-report to the, the people selling the ads. So you need, you need that verification because there's not trust in the system. I see. Yeah, see, in podcast advertising, it's much more straightforward. If people don't go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, then they know, right? Yeah. Or if you don't go to digitalocean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean. They know. Well, That's so, a custom yeah. action. Yeah. It's just that they're trying to do too much. If they, if yeah. they change back to that, it would be better, yes. Because it, in my estimation, and maybe, maybe, maybe in a few years this is going to change, but right now I think the podcasting advertising model is kind of clean because there's, the only data we have is roughly we know how many people download it, although even firewalls and NATs kind of screw that up a bit. So well, uh, Also uh, – other websites that download one copy and then let people download it. I mean, like Google app. Play and Stitcher. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Stitcher and there was some other podcasting website that was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, numbers. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the advertiser is also doing their own auditing by 
just seeing the engagement. And we don't have to have web browser stats, or we don't have to have any weird, creepy data to make that transaction work for everybody. Right. In the end, it comes out to what they really want is to put the tracking cookie on your machine so they can follow you from site to site that has in the ad network. Right. So See, the problem is they're, they're, get, they're greedy and they want to be creepy and they want all the data. Just yeah. like Stitcher and Google Play well, want and, all and the And data. they want to show more relevant ads, which makes sense, but... Okay, yeah. No. I suppose, although it seems like that is not... How many years are we into this? And I still get barely relevant stuff. And most yeah. of the time it's for I've, stuff I've bought. I, and if I do get a relevant ad, it's usually overdone. It's yeah. like, oh, so I went to your website... Uh, and I looked at buying something, and maybe I did buy it, and now I just get retargeted constantly. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like the the video streaming software we use. Go to their website, you know, uh, found some articles in the support form or whatever, and I just see their ads for a month afterwards. Yeah, yeah. It was like, I'm already paying you thousands of dollars a month. What do you want me to do? Stop advertising. Exactly. To me. I've had that same situation where I've, I've, I'm researching a piece of equipment that we own in studio, and then I get ads for it for a week, and it's like, I... I already bought that. You have all of my emails. You even have the receipt for when I bought that. Why are you advertising that to me? Well, it's because uh, they just put a piece of code on each yeah, product page yeah, it's that simple. tells Google, hey, mm-hmm. this I person know. was interested in this. Beat them over the head with it until they buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, yeah, there you go. That's our thoughts on Flash and online ads all in one story. Not bad. That's some, that's some serious ground we covered. Let me tell you about some serious ground you can cover in your next project with DigitalOcean. Go to DigitalOcean.com and spin up some infrastructure for you in 55 seconds or less. And pricing plans start only $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. In fact, uh, I, am, I think it might be in the NYC data center. I can't remember which data center my droplets in. I saw the new uh, block storage feature show up. I haven't played with it yet, but that, the new tab is in there. So this is awesome. It's a new feature DigitalOcean is rolling out. With $5 a month, you can really experiment with anything. And it actually just works out to $5 a month because their pricing is hourly. So you can turn the rigs on and off. You can destroy them or create them. And, and, and one of the nice things is, is you can start at the $5 rigs, and then you can just upgrade it over time. The entire infrastructure is based on SSD, so the disk I.O. is crazy fast. they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, and Germany. They have a really nice control panel that's surprisingly sweet for being a web app. It's it, it's just as good as any desktop application, and they're managing virtual machines and data centers all over the world. And they keep adding really slick features like the ability to add your SSH keys as you spin up the machine, managing the DNS. They've got multiple distributions to choose from, including FreeBSD, and they have a bunch of great documentation. Like Here's an example, how to install and configure OpenNTPD on FreeBSD 10.2 created uh, uh, just a couple of days ago, actually. That's pretty cool. Uh, over on the DigitalOcean community site, they have a lot of really solid documentation. They've hired in-house editors to make sure this stuff is clean and tight and easily presentable. They're really committed to that. You combine that with their great service, their great interface, their locations all over the world, and our promo code SNAPOcean, then you get the $10 credit, you try out the $5 rig two months for free. And you support this show by using the promo code SNAPOcean over at DigitalOcean. Dot com. Go spin up a machine and try it out. Try it with FreeBSD or Linux. You can do just the bare machine or you can deploy an entire application stack, which is super nice, really, really nice, especially when somebody gives you something that you got to try out in a Docker container and you don't want to spend all afternoon or, well, 20 minutes, whatever it would take, 
messing with Docker. You go there, one-click deployment, you try out, you put the container in the thing, you say, oh, look at the whiz-bagging thing it does, and you can destroy it. And you can do that 100 times with our promo code SNAPOcean and just spin them up and, and clone them and snapshot them. It's really cool. You can play around. They've got a great API, too, where you can take it up to the next level. So check it out, digitalocean.com, and use the promo code SNAPOcean. Thanks, DigitalOcean. And uh, dig around on their uh, community site. they got some great FreeBSD mm-hmm. stuff up there, too, for you FreeBSD fans, which I have a, a suspicion. There's probably a couple in the audience. Speaking of BSD, we got a brand new episode of BSD Now, episode 148, The Place to Be a Robot? Yes. A robot. What's this about? Uh, yes. Uh, this is uh, a robot based on a BeagleBone Black running FreeBSD, and it actually walks around on like spider legs. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yep. Episode 148 of the BSD Now program. Check it out with Alan and the other Chris. And uh, you can start downloading it right now. Probably be ready to go by the time we finish up the TechSnap program because we're about halfway through. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the JB site or submit a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email comes in this week from, hold on, I got to scroll up because I just did that to myself. Uh, it comes in from Jason and Jason writes, hey, Alan and Chris, I was reading on Ars Technica about NoSQL databases. Uh, used with Internet of Things devices. Well, how about that, Alan? Uh, he says, have either of you used databases like Reic or Cassandra? And if so, what exactly are these databases and what are the benefits do they have over, say, a relational database? Thanks, you guys, for everything you do. Jason. Right. Uh, so I've not used those two. The only one I've ever used was MongoDB, yeah, okay. which has kind of a bad name for a couple of reasons. But anyway, um, what it, that, in the case of MongoDB, it's what's called the document store engine or something like that. So basically, each object that you have in the database, instead of being a row in a table, is basically a JSON document. Uh, The first major advantage type thing for this is that you don't have a schema per se. So you don't, uh, in a regular relational database, you have tables that have columns and then you insert rows, right? Uh, So in the case of MongoDB, instead, you just have the JSON document. So it means if you have entries for two different users, they don't necessarily always have the same fields, right? Mm-hmm. So okay. uh, some users could have extra fields and some users don't have them or whatever. But the big thing that made it useful for what I was doing was that instead of just the row being data, uh, you know, instead of um, on a row, each column just being you know, text or numbers or whatever, mine was a JavaScript object so it could oh. contain an array, or an actual object, so like a hash map. Uh, so this allowed me to say, for a user, have an array uh, of all of the um, IDs of the video games that the user had. Uh, so this was for a site for uh, trading used video games. So we had this giant database of all the games, and then you picked which ones you had, and then you picked which ones you want. Hmm. And so instead of having, in a relational database, we would have had a table for users, the table for games, and then we would have these like have and want tables that would have just said, this user has this game, this user has that game. And so when we want to look up all users that had a specific game, we'd have to do this select and then a join and it's slow. Whereas in this one, we could just say, find me every user who has uh, this number in the array of this particular or sub-object and so on. And so it 
it definitely works a lot different in that case, uh, and it had some extra abilities that I liked. And uh, the main thing, well, another thing it let me do was geographic queries. I could say, sign me everybody within you know ten kilometers of this coffee shop, and so on. Hmm. Uh, so some so flexibility in the different kinds of data that you can yeah. store. Um, it depends on the different uses, and each sure. one's different. Yeah. And I don't know about React or, or Cassandra. Uh, and I know that uh, Postgres SQL, which is a regular relational database, mm-hmm. has a NoSQL adapter thing, uh, which lets you do some NoSQL, sti- NoSQL style queries against your data, which is interesting. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of people love that. A lot of people love Postgres. Lots of love for Postgres, even in the chat oh, room. BSD licensed and uh, better support than SQL or MySQL. And I've met I've met some of the folks that work on it. Very nice, cool people. Yep, uh, um, and they have a, a conference run by the same guy that runs BSD Can. Hmm. Rob writes in with our next question. He says, I've been unhappy with Ubuntu as of late as a desktop workstation distro. I've decided that now that my work laptop has a shiny new SSD, it was time to try something new, and I went with Antigros due to the raving reviews. I've also decided to head down the ZFS path, which is nice since I did it during the install. Uh, he did have a hiccup with installing Grub, so he said, beware of those. There may be dragons <laughs> if you go down that path. But so far, once he got that resolved, it's been good. He wanted to know if there is a GUI utility that Alan would suggest to handle managing ZFS snapshots, restores, etc. I don't mind the command line, but sometimes I'd rather let the GUI do the gory, de- the gory details so I can better manage my time on other more pressing matters. <coughs> Thanks, uh, So yes, Well, if at the command line you're creating snapshots manually, then there are definitely tools to automate that, like... Uh, ZFS tools, ZFS snap, ZFS snapshot management, etc. Um, the only GUI tool I know of is PCBSD's uh, Life Preserver backup tool has a time machine like interface for ZFS snapshots. Yeah, I don't know. I know you can install that in Villain of FreeBSD, but I don't know if that'll work on a Linux. I've never seen any uh, other ones either. No, well, ZFS on Linux is fairly new. Yeah. Uh, but in general, I'm not sure what you're wanting the GUI to do. Probably like, the, just the process of here are your snapshots. You could re- pick from one to restore okay. from, you know. Yeah. Um, if your file browser program was smart enough, there's a hidden .zfs directory in the root of every ZFS file system. And inside that, there's a directory called snapshots. And then there's a directory for each snapshot. And inside that is the view of that file system from that snapshot time, which is handy. Yeah. Yes, I suppose a GUI tool to let you browse and mount your snapshots would be useful. As far as managing uh, the ZFS snapshots, uh, when to create them, when to purge them, and so on, that's mostly a command line tool with a, a small config file. Uh, or in the case of ZFS tools, you just set properties on the data sets, saying how often to take snapshots and how long to keep them for, and it just does it for you. You know, and also... You have to realize this is not a file system that has a huge market share on the desktop. So there's not a large well, incentive to create GUI apps. Now it's changing, right? right. So maybe that yes, will change changing. as well. Maybe yeah. there will become maybe there will be GUI apps that that arrive as more well, and more are, desktop is, users. You know, there there is GUI apps for it on PCBSD and they have yeah. integration with their new desktop manager, Lumina. <clears throat> right. Uh, but I don't know that it's uh, and, existed on Linux long enough for anybody to do Anagros, that. And Theragros is uh, one of the distros out there that makes it just check a couple of bo- – or actually check one box in your Linux installa- installer in the GUI and uh, you have ZFS. And I, I would imagine the next version of Ubuntu GUI installer will probably have that feature too. Um, so it's probably yeah. – it's probably – well – realistically maybe a year or so away but. but the other thing is that in order for the snapshots and so on to be useful your file system layout has to be 
well, it doesn't have to be, but there are certain extra things you can do that make it more useful. Um, but there's not really a one-size-fits-all thing either, mm. so it's, it's interesting. Well, there you go, Rob. Good question. Thanks for asking. Now, our next email comes in from Ray. He says, greetings. Somehow, I have obtained an older HP DL380 G5 server with an older dual quad-core Xeon processor in them. I'm thinking of using this as a media storage device and an MB server for my apartment. I know it might be overkill, but I don't, I don't have identical disk to put into this machine and was wondering if FreeNAS would be able to use the most of the space provided. Here's what I do have. I have one Hitachi 500 gig. One HGST 500 gig. One Western Digital Scorpio Blue 500 gig. Sorry. Oh, right. Yes. And two Western Digital Scorpio Green, two terabyte. Uh, These are all two and a half inch drives, and each drive is set as a RAID 0 by itself, so FreeNAS can use them individually. I'm not worried about backups of this machine, as I have everything backed up seven ways a Sunday in various other media. Thanks for reading this, Ray. So what do you think about using those? So because he has the pairs, he can do that. So if you create a uh, mirror pair, so you, uh, in FreeNAS you have to add the drives two at a time via the GUI, uh, but you create the pool with, say, the two 500-gig drives, uh, like the two matched uh, Western Digital ones. So you create the pool with the two drives in a mirror. Then you add the other two 500-gig drives as a second mirror, and the two 2-terabyte two drives as the third mirror. And now you'll have uh, three terabytes of usable space. Huh. Now, three terabytes of usable space when you had six hard drives to start with seems like not very much but (laughs) it gives you the most flexibility that in the future you can uh, one at a time swap out uh one 500 gig drive for say another two terabyte or three four or five terabyte drive whatever you happen to buy um and then once it's finished the resilver process you can swap out the second one and now you've expanded the size of your storage by whatever size the new hard drives are uh and you only had to buy two drives at a time and then you do that again uh, for the second set of 500 gigs, uh, maybe a year later. And then eventually the smallest drive in your pool is the two two terabyte drives and you swap them out. Uh, you know, So basically you add two drives at a time until you're out of room in the chassis to fit more drives. And then you start by replacing the smallest drives with bigger ones and your storage keeps growing and your storage machine runs forever and ever and ever. Hmm. Uh, it's like even, you know... Uh, we talked about this with the uh, TrueNAS the other week. Um, you know, they're like, so we have these 24-drive shelves that go into the rack, and once you get them all full, you're not stuck. You don't have to copy all your files off and then come back. You could take all, the, take all 24 drives out of one of these enclosures, put it in a new 60-drive enclosure, and add more drives. Uh, or, or you could swap out all 24 of your old, you know, two terabyte drives that are running out of warranty with new five terabyte drives that have a three-year warranty left or whatever, depending on, you know, if you want to buy. But yes, Mm. this is why for home, I recommend doing mirror sets like this for your file server. Even though you get less space, in the end, you get this more flexibility so that you can basically keep this one pool alive forever by just swapping out a couple of drives at a time. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So in the end, you don't get as much storage out of the same number of drives as right. if you did a RAID Z of some kind, but it allows you to mix and match uh, drives of different sizes as long as you do two at a time that yep. are the same. Yep. Uh, or you could fake it by, you know, um, if you use a 500 gig and a one terabyte drive together, it just only uses the first half of the, hmm. the, the bigger one. Um, but it, it just gives you that flexibility. You know, it's what I recommended to Chris when he wants to do it for JB. It's like if you get something that has a reasonable number of drive slots – just add drives as you can as you need them mm-hmm. or can afford them mm-hmm. and once it gets 
completely full of drives, you just start by taking out the smallest drives because you've, as you've accumulated them, you've got drives right. of different size and you could just keep doing this. Yeah. And, you know, as long as you don't ever get to the point where you need more storage than 12 of the biggest drives available can, can fit, then <laughs> you don't need to buy a new server. I think that probably answers the question a lot of people watching have, because I know a lot of folks want to do that. Yeah. Um, and so while you can do RAID Z and so on and get more sure. out of the hard drives you have, mm-hmm. um, it limits the flexibility a bit. Um, because if you want more drives, you have to add a whole second RAID Z of, it doesn't have to be identical, but you want all the drives in the RAID Z to be identical. Uh, and so the mirror sets definitely gives you more flexibility. And the other thing is mirrors are higher IOPS and are much better if you're hosting virtual machines because they mm. give you that many more IOPS to pass through into the virtual machine. Also nice. So our next email <clears throat> comes in from the cloud is a lie. And he's got a two-parter for us. Uh, he recently got a new machine, a couple of new upgrades, uh, E3 version 5 Xeons with Super Micros with uh, AST2400 BMCs on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, the, uh, with the nice IPMI ports, he's, he acknowledges, though, that he is totally a noob and was even shocked when he saw, when he saw the, the other Mac on his network. So it's kind of interesting we were talking about it recently. So he wants to know, is there any good primer on IPMI and the best practices we could suggest? He says he's found documentation on Super Micro site. But it's all heavy on the high-level marketing speak. So he wanted to know if there was any so, uh, way to go. If, if the dedicated IPMI NIC is hooked up to the network before the machine is powered on, it will default to that one. Uh, otherwise, but the, So the default setting is failover, which means uh-huh. if the dedicated NIC has link, when the machine is turned on, it'll use that. Otherwise, it will do, double up on the first uh, NIC in the system. Uh, you know, some of my machines have like four or six NICs plus the dedicated one. But anyway, uh, so it'll default to that. And he asks if there's a good primer on IPI, best practices, and so on. Uh, so, yeah, in the web interface for the IPMI or using IPMI tool, uh, which is a command line program, or IPMI view, which is their, um, it's like a desktop uh, Java app that I use to control like 100 servers with IPMI. It's quite useful. Um, it has the options to specifically set uh, the different modes, which are uh, onboard, or sorry, it's a dedicated, shared, or failover, which is at boot decide, you know, if mm-hmm. one's plugged in, use it, otherwise do not. Um, the advantage to the shared NIC uh, system is that you don't need a second cable and an extra switch port. You know, if you're filling a rack with machines, eventually you... It's like, well, do I really want to have to have a whole switch just dedicated to this? Could I use VLANs, which is basically his next question. Yeah. Uh, so in general, um, yeah, change the password. Make sure you have the latest version of the IPMI because uh, they do firmware updates for that, and you should install those because um, they usually have security updates and so on. Uh, but yeah, if use the web interface or IPMI view to set the IPMI port to dedicated mode, and it will only use the dedicated NIC. Uh, which is basically the only way to disable it if you don't want it to be used at all. Okay. Uh, because otherwise it shares with that onboard NIC and people might be able to reach it. Uh, okay. But yes, you can program almost all of the IPMI settings from IPMI tool on the command line in the OS uh, of the running system. Nice. Uh, so yeah, like you said, he does have a second part here. Uh, he says, I know one of Alan's suggestions would be putting the IPMI port in a separate VLAN, which brings me to my second question. I finally caught wind of the impending 2.5 to or slash 5 gigabit Ethernet standard and has put a damper on my eagerness to get a managed switch. Is there any hope of getting a switch that might be upgradable 
once the standard is ratified, like, you know, say through a SPF module. Considering the track record of Wi-Fi standards, I know that might be risky. But what do you think, Alan? you think it's worth waiting to get a managed switch if a new standard uh, is on no, the No, so the, the 2.5 and 5 gigabit Ethernet stuff is mostly for internal stuff. So I've seen some uh, Intel Atom machines where it was, one, it was like a 3U rack mount server that actually had like 40 Intel Atoms inside of it. Mm. Um, and they used a 2.5 gigabit per second Ethernet port, or two of them bounded together to get the 5 gigabit, uh, to connect to the backplane. And this one physical chassis just had a 40 gigabit, a dual 40 gigabit network out to the network. So um, 2.5 slash 5 gigabit Ethernet is probably never going to be something you're really going to buy a managed switch of. And, uh, and in any you know, case, 10 gigabit switches are you can already get for only a couple hundred dollars now. And there's fiber uh, too. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> in any case, you would never. You would not. This is not really something you'd want to do. You wouldn't want to wait for a brand new standard to come out and then jump on it right away either. Really, it's not right. typically going to get just, you very far. Uh, yeah, basically, the the two point five slash five gigabit stuff is mostly only for internal stuff, okay. and ten gigabits already getting pretty cheap. Like uh, I don't know the the Netgear cheapo ten gig switch I have was like four ninety nine now I think. Uh, and uh, there's some other ones. Uh, I've also, uh, for cheaper than that, I've got uh, a Netgear that's 24 ports of gigabit and then four ports of 10 gigabit, uh, two copper and two uh, SFP+. Plus. So that allowed me to interlink uh, the switches and uh, basically have a 10 gigabit connection out to other stuff, but only... You know, not have to pay yeah. a twenty-four port ten gigabit switch. Yeah, nice. But the 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 Netgear one, I the other the te- Netgear ten gig one I bought is eight or ten ports of all ten gig. Nice. Okay. Um, all right. Okay. Now so, we're talking. Yes. SF. If you get something that is all ten gig and has SF SFP plus modules, then it can do you know one two point five five and ten probably. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the tens are already so cheap. Did I say SPF? Sorry, it's it's it is SF. P. SFP plus. Yes, because yeah. SPF is the sender policy framework yeah. for spam. Yeah. It's not the stuff that gets that prevents you from getting a sunburn either. That's right. something else. Uh, yeah, it's hey, like solar protection factor or something like that. <laughs> um, S- anyway. SPS. Uh, what is it? Yeah. Uh, so he also mentions well. – uh, he also makes a note about uh, port knocking. Just <laughs> one more follow-up on port knocking. He says an alternative to that uh, is OffPF. Uh, from what I've gathered, thanks to BSD67 show notes, BSD67 show notes, it allows you to dynamically add PF rules upon connection of an SSH session. Sadly, it doesn't actually seem to be exposed in the PFSense GUI. So there yeah. you go. Uh, well, I think it will be in the next version. I just saw – the very first boot of PFSense 2.4 on a minnow board, or not a minnow board, some little device that has a name similar to minnow board. Okay. Um, and uh, PFSense 2.4 uses ZFS in boot environments for the file system. Oh, dun, great. Dun, dun, dun. That's going to make updates like... Solid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. SPF also, yeah, exactly. Could be a spam filtering protocol. It's true. <laughs> There's a lot of things. We were talking about SCP+. Uh, so there you go. The cloud is a lie. Our recommendation yep. is don't necessarily yeah, you, wait. Uh, that's how you can set up the dedicated NIC if you want it, or you can use VLANs. And yeah. again, you can program that with IPMI tool on the machine. Uh, like on FreeBSD, it's just uh, PLD load IPMI and package install IPMI tool. And then it's IPMI tool land set v 
VLAN ID 7 or whatever. Now mm-hmm. it's in VLAN 7. Um, for the managed switches, um, I have a D-Link all 10 gig switch. Um, it was a bit more, but it's because I bought it because it was slightly fancier and had a, a mix of copper and, and uh, fiber yeah. ports. Because if you're just doing fiber or if you're, if you're just doing copper, uh, the fixed ports are cheaper than the SFP pluses. That, uh, uh, but that... also, if, if you need SFP modules, uh, fs.com, fiber store, super cheap. Love it. Yeah. Um, there you go. I suppose also just for places to look for learning more about IPMI, start messing with the command line tools and learn what their capabilities are, and you'll, be, you'll get a pretty good idea of what the sandbox is and uh, what, the, uh, what you can do. All right. So uh, send your emails into the TextNet program, won't you please? Go over to Jupiter Broadcasting and click the contact link, and then just choose TextNet from the dropdown and put your question in there. Networking, storage, server, security, all that stuff. We love it. Uh, Noah will be sitting in the hot seat next week reading them, which we should probably just go swimmingly smooth. I'm sure will be no problem at all. So send in lots of nice, tough questions for him. TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com if you want to email him directly. With the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. All the Roundup stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to cover them and give you some links to read on your own after the show. And some of these links were supplied by our secret intelligence agency that no one's ever heard of, I've never mentioned before, at techsnap.reddit.com. Wait. And our first story came from that intelligence network. Google's giant new Trans-Pacific Internet cable goes online today. Faster and faster. Yeah, Google and faster. doesn't own this entirely. Okay. Uh, theirs is called Faster and All Uppercase. Uh, but it's, oh, I uh, see. Faster, a joint faster, venture and with, faster. Yeah, it's a joint venture with a bunch of other companies, uh, like uh, two Chinese telecoms and a bunch of other places. Uh, but yeah, it will connect uh, their data center in or- Oregon to Japan, to two different sites in Japan. And it's uh, 60 terabits and shared between a bunch of companies oh, that are going to use it. 60 terabits. All right. Look at Google, huh? Google really has quite the fiber infrastructure. Uh, Carbon Black has a story about finding mm-hmm. the ATM skimmers in the wild, perhaps a video on how yes. to do it. Is yes, that there's what this a video is? there. Okay. Uh, so this guy was uh, a researcher in uh, uh, Vienna, Austria, and uh, you know he's just looking around in the square and decides to go use the ATM. <laughs> Looks like a very nice place. He's walking around. Machine ATM. Now, I posted on my LinkedIn a little while ago about someone that actually deconstructed an ATM skimmer. Recovered and what I was hearing, well. notice that there's a little bit of glue. And just to. You can oh, see I right do see here. And just because I'm paranoid uh, with cybersecurity, I decided just to go ahead and give us a tug. And I'll let you hear. So you actually. Comes right off. Oh, it pops off the other this one. This is very well up. made. You can see it's an exact replica. Uh, actually, you don't hold on, man. Don't do that. Uh, don't do this. Hold on. Okay, so this one you're fine. This is actually whoa. a skimmer that actually steals credit cards. This one right here, you can tell, is safe because you can't take this off. This right here would steal someone's credit card. So you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she so, says thank you. <laughs> I just found this out. And uh, I'm going to go try to see what I can do about reverse engineering this. I work with a uh, cybersecurity company called Carbon Black. She doesn't care, dude. No. <laughs> but, uh, you guys yeah, she's like, yeah, right My machine's good, right? Wow. Is this, does this feel like we're hearing about this a lot more than we used to? Yeah. Seems like uh, it's, you know, 
But that one, that one was very well made. Mm-hmm. You know, that I, looked exactly yeah. like it and everything. I was wondering if they added the lights, but no, they just made it translucent. So the uh, yeah, lights... it's just interesting that they actually have uh, a perfect custom mold to it. Well, the whole reason why making that funky shape was to make it so that you can just slot one over it. Oh, yeah, it anyway. you're right. Yeah, good point. Hmm. Well, maybe they recovered all of the uh, secret designs off of old hard drives be- bought off eBay. CSO Online uh, did a uh, ran a story from about a study that was conducted. There's a company called uh, Blanco Technology Group, which specializes in data erasure, and they conducted a study by randomly buying 200 secondhand PC storage drives from eBay and Craigslist. Over half the drives, uh, 67% to be precise, held personal files such as photos and location indicators, resumes, and even financial data. Of course, falling in the wrong hands, that'd be badass. 11% of the drives also contain company data, such as emails, spreadsheets, and consumer information. They say most consumers apparently just do a quick format on the storage device, thinking that all the files have been permanently removed. However, those methods do not fully delete the data and leave it hidden intact. You know, D-ban. Yeah, D-ban. Yeah. Uh, of the storage drives examined, only 10% had all the data securely wiped. So about 10% used D-ban. <laughs> Google CEO Sundar Pichai uh, has his Quora account hacked. What happened here? Was he not using uh, Google's two-factor authentication? But I'm, I'm not sure uh, what happened there. <laughs> but um, these guys from a group called Ourmine uh, basically managed to take over his Quora account. And uh, because it was linked to his Twitter, we were able to post messages to his Twitter from Quora. Yeah, okay. That's how they did that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know, so, nothing uh, to see here. Nothing yeah. to see. Just uh, a Twitter hack. Yep. This story has some people in the subreddit pretty upset. Uh, the FBI's use of a Tor exploit is like peering through broken blinds, says the judge, and it doesn't constitute as an actual search. Uh, yeah, the ours has talked about this before, and we've talked about it before, uh, but they say that the FBI deployed a network investigative technique, an NIT in their vernac, uh, in a related case prosecuted out of New York. So this is... So, so I guess my determination on this would depend on where the exploit is done. If they put something on your computer then that's them searching unreasonable search and seizure. If they're just setting up a bunch of their own exit nodes and monitoring the traffic and correlating stuff, then that is stuff you're sending to the public. So internet. in this case, they, uh, they, they, I believe, took over a server, and then the users that connected to the server got infected, and they were connected over Tor, and then... Ah, so they, yeah, so they took over the site that was actually where the user was going and infected them yeah. with a virus that would de-anonymize them. Yeah. And the judge says... No, that's definitely not just... That's open. not peeking through blinds. I'm not sure they're totally in the wrong 100%, but it's not peeking through blinds. It's way worse right, than peeking in, through in blinds. In this particular case, yeah, if, if they were doing something in mass and happened to see it, uh, basically if they saw the bits as they went over the internet, that's one thing. But when they actually infect something on your computer by targeting you, that's different. Doesn't matter how fast you are, Alan. Even a NASCAR driver couldn't, or at least a team, couldn't avoid paying ransomware fees to recover files worth $2 million. <laughs> yeah, so they had uh, files of high-profile simulations and so on that took about 1,500 man hours to create. Wow. Or, or would take that much to recreate. Yeah, okay. uh, But because it was untargeted ransomware, it just had a fee of $500. 
I'm well, sure that ransomware author is like, well, if I had known yeah, I right. actually got something <laughs> worth anything yeah. and not just grandma's desktop, yeah. I probably would have set a price higher than $500. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there is an interesting bug in Chrome that Google doesn't seem to be that hot to fix. It's a DRM bug that makes it easy to download streaming video from Netflix and Amazon. Security researchers discovered a vulnerability in the Google Chrome browser that could allow users to bypass its copy protection system and download content from streaming video services like those two I just mentioned. This is according to Y. Google was alerted to the problem on May 24th. Eh, it really hasn't released anything. The vulnerability centers oh, around the. I could. On. Yeah, it could be. They could be working on it. The vulnerability centers around. That's Wired's take on it. Uh, the Widevine Digital Rights Management System, which Google owns and has implemented into Chrome, and it's specifically how it handles decryption of encrypted media streams. Widevine uses two pieces of tech to protect content, the encrypted media extensions we've talked about before, which handle key exchanges and other high-level functions, and content decryption module, the CDM, which unscrambles encrypted video for playback in the browser. Boy, it sounds like my old satellite TV days. So in particular, the reason Google might not have fixed this yet is because it might not be that easy to fix. It basically sounds like uh, a way that you can steal the unencrypted video uh, after it's decrypted. Yeah. Uh, and in which case, it's probably not that easy to fix. It's, it's why all DRM will always be broken. Because in the end, you have to have the unencrypted video to play it. I, I wonder. And that's always going to happen on if it's on your computer, not a device Google owns. Maybe this, then, this is so out there that maybe they just don't feel like it's a huge threat. I mean, you'd really have to know what you're doing. It's such a small percentage of people, maybe. Yeah, but, you know. Netflix, it's in Netflix' interest to protect against this as hard as they can because, you know, somehow uh, the studios I, are going to force them to basically. I don't, I don't know how, but like the day of, I mean, the almost right after Netflix posts like House of Cards or Orange Is the New Black or Kimmy Schmidt, like they they almost immediately you see them on online for download. So somebody ha- is figured out a way to get these, and they're not just doing screen cap recordings of these. They're so well, it's probably something similar to this. Yeah, and, I wonder if other people they really would like Google not to fix it. Exactly. This may this may have been an issue that's been around for a while, and the researchers are just kind of coming across this. I don't know. Somebody's figured out a way to get this stuff. Yeah. Java, PHP, Node.js, and Ruby tools compromised by a severe Swagger vulnerability. Yeah, so Swagger is this framework system to automatically turn – automatically write the code to use an API. So basically, by looking at the the – Custom like the specially formatted documentation on how the API works, it writes all the code for you to use the API in your application. Hmm. So it's basically this Swagger standard provides a way to consume other people's APIs and quickly get a client going in languages like Java, PHP, Node.js, and Ruby. But it turns out the Swagger thing itself has a vulnerability, which means that it could be exploited in all of those languages because all of them use or can use Swagger. So yeah. it's not a critical flaw in PHP or Node.js itself, but if you're using Swagger, somebody could make your program do evil things. <laughs> I like the name a lot. <laughs> I got to be honest. I really like the name. Uh, all right. So this is an interesting one. This is a QSEE privilege escalation vulnerability and exploit. QSEE. Yes. It's one of the CCTV things from the Qualcomm top. Secure Execution Environment, my friend. Oh. Oh, sorry. This is different then. This is the uh, cell phone. Uh, yeah, with this. Oh, right. Yes, right. Sorry. This. You're right. I. This. Uh, I. I actually did read about this. This is a vulnerability that is allowing attackers to bypass uh, security bypass uh, in in Android. And there is, 
Uh, there's an exploit that's just been published today, I think, based on this. So that's why I threw this in the roundup because I think maybe by next week this could be a bigger story. Sure. There you go. Yeah, it's a it's <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit of a chip level issue too. I think mm-hmm. we have a lecture in the roundup here. Yes, this is uh, how to build an insecure system out of perfectly good cryptography. <laughs> uh, uh, are so we talking really about Telegram or what are we? Nope. <laughs> uh, but this is basically just showing uh, kind of some of the nuts and bolts of cryptography and how it works and how uh, you can easily use. You know, we we tell people don't write your own crypto. Use the stuff that exists, and this shows how even if you're just using stuff that exists and works and is good, if you put them together wrong, you can make something terrible. Yeah, yeah, that Which was... is, happens almost as often as people like Telegram making up their own encryption thing. Yeah, yes, that is very true. Um, I liked this one uh, because I, you know, we've talked so much about how necessary it is that the FBI can access encrypted phones. They they spend so much effort getting into Tor. Uh, well, the DOJ has a new report out, and it basically makes all of those efforts seem a little less important. Headline is less than a quarter of one percent of wiretaps encounter any crypto. That's amazing. So that whole going dark problem of terrorists using encrypted communications to talk with one another is just totally bogus well, according see, to DOJ's own numbers. The problem is the, the actual definition of going dark is when they stop communicating at all. Yeah, and don't. yeah. That is true. However, uh, they have started referring to encryption as the new going dark problem. This yeah. is a phrase they've been using in the U.S. Yeah, I know. They just – I don't know. Going static makes more sense. Or yeah, or yeah, going noise maybe. Yeah, <laughs> because going dark is a different thing. It's yeah. literally like, all right, we've already coordinated. We already know everything. It's radio. Well, I guess radio silence basically. If we, if we don't communicate, they can't snoop on it. Corey Doctorow. And it points, works even better than encryption. Corey Doctorow points out that you have to bear in mind this is also despite a 21 percent increase in wiretaps authorized by state courts between 2014 and 2015 so this is a massive increase in wiretaps and this number is still this low that means in 2015 out of 4148 total wiretaps that they did only 11 encountered any encryption at all uh that they couldn't break or get past like hardline phones don't really do it that I think this. It looks like cell phones. Like, that's what they're talking about in this article. Unless you're yeah. going to use a, a special software that's going to like, if you're going to use encryption for your cell phone call, it's going to be data, not voice. So it probably wiretap doesn't count. It depends on what the the definition about in this too. for wiretap. Just I think means data on the phone. Right. Yes. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Technically speaking, wiretap would be the phone line. Yep. Uh, okay. Speaking of noise, malware can use fan noise. To steal data from air-gapped systems. I kind of heard yeah, about, so about These this. guys have been working on a bunch of different ways to get uh, data out of air-gapped computers, which are computers that are not connected to the Internet. So they've done uh, using uh, mobile phones to do radio frequencies. they called Air Hopper. <laughs> using just heat, bit whisper. Uh, using rogue software that uses GSMEM, uh, modules that transmit electromagnetic signals at, at cellular frequencies and so on. The latest version of their data exfiltration attack against air gap computers involves the fans. Uh, so they actually modulate the speed of the CPU, GPU, and case fan uh, to represent different uh, and have basically one speed means zero, one speed means one. And by flipping back and forth between them, uh, they can send data very slowly, but hmm. send data very uh, slowly, right? I mean, somewhere between like one to four meters away. Yeah, and it's the bitrate is something ridiculous. I, they don't list yeah. it here in the article, but I remember it's something. It's like 
yeah, nine bits. But you know, a if, if all you're something. trying to do is get out like a, a twenty-five yeah. kilobyte document file yeah. that contains all the secrets, that it would still so take though something like so many hours to transfer. I can't remember yes. the number, but it was. But it's still it's yeah. fascinating. Fan noise. Stop it. Just stop it's it. A, the attack works uh, um, in the one hundred to six hundred hertz range, which can be picked up by the human ear. Uh, but choosing smaller fan speeds, so lower fan speeds, uh, or uh, fan speeds that are closer together will make it harder for a human to detect it. Because obviously if you're sitting at your computer and it's going, you'll be like, what the hell, right? Uh, but if, you're, uh, if they do it when the fans barely is making a lot less noise or by putting the two different speeds close enough together, you don't notice the difference. Uh, it'll be harder for a human to check. The downside is that then every bit of background noise, it makes it that much harder to detect what the bit was. And then you have to, uh, you know, send the bits, encode them into bigger chunks to, to get the data through reliably. Man, if you're desperate enough and you need that password or you need that document name or whatever it is. Yeah, if, if you're to the point where you're trying to steal something from a computer that's not connected to the network. Yeah, you're motivated. You're motivated. <laughs> hey, speaking of motivated, Microsoft finally got motivated to make Windows 10 a little bit easier to decline. To reject. Yeah. <laughs> They're making a change in their wording of get Windows 10 update to uh, make it easier to decline, which is good because they've gotten a lot of crap. They just recently got sued, too. They had to pay out $10,000 to an individual gal who uh, sued them over it. Microsoft has uh, released a nice long statement about it, but it's seriously not worth reading. Clicking the red X will dismiss the box now and won't automatically commence the update either, which is <laughs> a nice improvement in that UI, which previously had been happening for a few weeks. You click the red X to close the update prompt, and it starts installing the update. Just That's just marvelous. Uh, the IRS is killing e-filing pins permanently now. Yes. So this was uh, after a previous hack, they decided to stop using e-filing pins, mm-hmm. uh, but they kept them alive for a while because a bunch of tax software that people have already bought still uses them. Uh, but now after yet another attack, they've decided they have to just kill it off. Uh, so the problem is that their pin system is like you do something, you get generated a pin, and then use that pin to prove it was you. Yeah. Uh, and so attackers were able to like steal them or guess them or something. Whereas in the Canadian version, you get sent the pin like in the mail in it's in like you have the pin and then you you use it to file but it's not the pin is just randomly selected and given to you it's not generated from an algorithm so just because i know all your information doesn't mean i can get your pin gosh whereas the us one that was possible and that was the problem i tell you uh, the more time, the more I talk to people outside the states about how their tax system works, it's it's generally oh, yes. There's some countries where it's nice, or where you have like an e-reader thing, yeah. like yeah. A, a card reader, and like in New Zealand, it's like if you just have a standard job, like a you know a nine to five job, and you don't have like extra income sources, like a small business or something like that, you don't you don't even file. It's just all done automatically for you. Like they just process it. There's nothing for you to do. And it's like. That makes sense. I, I don't understand why it's so complicated here and so antiquated. Um, okay, let's talk about our last link in the roundup. This looks like a big one. Oh, yeah. Oh, is there? Okay. Well, oh, I have, sorry. I added, remember, I added another one. Okay. All right. All it's right. It's like an hour ago. But anyway. Yes, uh, you know what? As I, I grabbed it at the top of the show, but I don't think I grabbed yes. it afterwards. All right. Yes. Yeah, so it's just one. More. Anyway. Take it away, so sir. The, uh, this story is JavaScript 7th edition has been released. Oh. So there's a new version of JavaScript, although there's not that many changes. They did add a couple of things that have been missing or people have been wanting for a while. Okay. The 7th edition is out, released uh, just a little bit ago. And then, now, our last roundup link of the day. 
Start Encrypt is considered harmful. Yes. Uh, so Start Encrypt is uh, from the people that do Start SSL, and mm-hmm. it's basically their version of Let's Encrypt. Right. However, there's a small little bug in it. So you know how with uh, Let's Encrypt and all the other ones, you have to prove you own the domain name before they give you the certificate, yeah. right? That's very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really the problem with automatic issuance of SSL certificates. So, you know, they have a client like Let's Encrypt. Uh, but it turns out if you uh, make your own client, then you uh, can specify the URL it uses to verify that you are the owner of the domain. Oh, sure. So instead of using, uh, you know, like on Let's Encrypt, it's like dot well dash known slash something or whatever. Uh, and I think um, for, for Start Encrypt, it's supposed to be uh, sign file. So your website slash sign file. And that's how you prove you own it. But if you make your own client that sends a slightly different request to their API, you can specify any URL you want. Mm. So uh, you could do it for, say, Dropbox. Get your own certificate that allows you to imitate the real Dropbox by just putting this sign file that oh, they man. give you in your Dropbox and then giving, make changing the uh, verify URL to be the link to that file via Dropbox. Oh, man. Or GitHub as a gist. And then now I have an official certificate and I can eavesdrop and men in the middle any connection to GitHub. Holy crap. And steal people's passwords. Yeah. This is, this is kind of a big deal. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, luckily, uh, so this was uh, re- found by a researcher on June 22nd. Uh, the issue was reported to Startcom the next day. They took their API offline, made some changes, turned it back online. But it was incompatible with their current client. So then they had to try to figure something out. And then they... Uh, updated the Windows client on June 28th and the Linux client on June 29th. Mm. Uh, although, apparently, they kept the version number for the Linux client the same, which is probably going to cause problems with package managers. <sighs> nice and confusing. Uh, and then they, uh, and then today, uh, Startcom informed uh, the people that reported it that they had uh, solved the problem. So, basically, um, they allowed the client to specify what URL is used to verify instead of enforcing that on the server side. And so some, anybody could pretend to be the client and uh, give it a, a invalid URL and allow you to get an SSL certificate for any website you want as long as you can upload a file to it. Nightmare. That's publicly accessible. That's the worst thing ever. Which is like the whole point of Dropbox and GitHub and so on, right? Yeah. Ooh, that's a bad one. Yep. Well, at least SSL is easier. Yep. So that is the end of the roundup. The roundup stories can be uh, juiced can be amped up, if you will, by our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. I'd love to have you join us live. The TechSnap program is live at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Okay, and you can follow that. Just just get it converted. Subscribe via RSS to that calendar if you want at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can watch that live at jblive.tv, jblive.fm for the audio stream, or download the show on demand afterwards. And we've got RSS feeds to make that easy and automatic, so you don't even have to worry about it because the TechSnap program is here every single freaking week for your edifications and infotainments. Edifications and infotainments from the TechSnap program. All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of the TechSnap show, and they'll see you right back here next week. Bye.